welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. Thank you especially for joining me on this special Thursday episode of the podcast. It feels kind of weird, but here we are. Also, this is my 50th episode. (laughs) Sorry for the noise of jubilation, I guess. (laughs) I'm pretty excited to have reached this milestone. But let's just jump right in, and I'll stop making that noise. This time we are talking about Otter Still by D.N. Bryn. Here is the summary. Rubim of No Man's Land was content keeping to his wine, his pets, and his extensive collection of fishnets. But since a sentient, fuel-producing parasite bonded to his brainstem, every morally depraved scientist and hardcore rebel for a hundred miles wants to ruthlessly dissect him. The parasite itself is no better, influencing his emotions and sassing him with his own memories as it slowly takes over his body. The only person offering Rubem help is Tavish K. Fenley, a dashing and manipulative philanthropist whose mother's fuel company monopolizes their corrupt underwater city with an iron claw. She desperately wants to tear Rubem apart for the parasite, before those who oppose her can do the same. Her son is irresistibly charismatic, though, and after a lifetime of being kicked out and disavowed, Rubim is desperate to believe in the friendship Tavish offers. With revolutionary plots and political schemes tangling his every choice, Rubim must soon decide whether or not to trust Tavish in his fight against the parasite's growing control. Otter Still comes out today, June 9th, 2022. Sort of the whole reason we're doing a Thursday podcast. Our author is D.N. Bryn. They are from California. They have some neat articles about world building and writing on their website, which I will link to in the show notes. They also have two other books written in this same setting called Our Bloody Pearl and Once Stolen. I received a free copy of this book in exchange for reviewing it. I haven't done an advanced reader copy for this podcast before, though I did dabble in advanced reviews a few years ago. As I said in the last episode, it's not how I usually like to interact with books. Back then, it put a certain strain on my reading. I could probably do it now, given my experience with the podcast but I don't know if I will. I just wanted to try it out at least once. However, if being an advanced reader and reviewer sounds interesting to you, there are plenty of websites where you can sign up to receive free books for the purpose of reviewing them. It helps self-published authors and smaller publishing houses to get the word out about new books. I don't know if it's still the case, but it used to be that you needed 50-plus reviews in order to show up in more search results, at least on Amazon. Okay, as usual, I'm getting a little off track. Otter Still 
is the third book, as I said, that Bryn has written in this world. I haven't read the other two books, but I was able to follow this one very easily. It's only vaguely connected to once stolen in that our main character here was a side character there, from what I can tell. But like I said, I followed it just fine. There was like one world building thing in this book that I was like, oh, maybe this was covered in the other books and I just won't get to know what it means. And then like a chapter later, it was explained. So that actually worked out great. Content warnings for this book include alcoholism and animal death. If you want a more complete list of content warnings with more details, Bryn has a list of content warnings on their website, which again, I'm linking in the show notes. The setting here is sort of steampunk water world. There are selkies, sirens, finfolk. Technically, I think the genre is urban fantasy because they have engines, cars, telephones, and guns. As I am sure I have said before, I do really like urban fantasy, especially when it's not a detective novel or a questionable romance novel. I like what urban fantasy does in terms of juxtaposing myth and modernity. What happens when you have a world of people who can transform into seals and live underwater, but also have creepy science labs and cars and guns? Steampunk isn't quite right, because that tends to be 19th century urban fantasy, but they do use an alternative fuel source. Instead of actual steam power, they use a fantasy fuel source called Ignatian, which they harvest from living creatures called auroras. The scientists in this world aren't entirely sure how auroras generate so much power, but they won't look a gift fuel source in the mouth, and so most of their technology is powered by Ignatian. An important thing to know about auroras is that they must form a parasitic bond with another living being in order to survive. Most auroras latch on to simple organisms. Our story begins with Rubim, who has been kidnapped, taken far away from his home, held at knife point, and it gets worse. An aurora has chosen him as a host, which is the first time anyone has seen an aurora inhabit a humanoid. If Rubim can't get the aurora removed, it will eventually latch onto him and completely take him over. He is, I think, the first person to discover that auroras are sentient, the one gradually weaving itself into his muscles and bones, is able to summon his memories, obviously trying to communicate with him. Rubim is not pleased to be at the forefront of scientific discovery, poor guy. His kidnapper, Lilias, wants the aurora. She wants the power that it can provide. She doesn't care who she hurts or kills to get her way. The only reason Rubim is still alive at the beginning of this book is that Lilias isn't sure how to remove the aurora without killing it. Lilias is called away, and Rubim uses the distraction to escape. 
There's only one place he can go in order to have a chance of removing the aurora safely. The underwater city of Marahim, populated mostly by selkies, who are people who can transform into seals. Or seals who can transform into people, depending on your point of view. Specifically, he needs to go to the Finley Corporation, the sole owners of auroras and suppliers of ignition for the city. The problem is, aside from being chased by Lilias, Rubem cannot simply swim to the underwater city because he relies on these pesky things called lungs to breathe air. Enter Tavish, a gorgeous blind selkie who happens to arrive on shore at the same time as Rubem. Tavish is not only an extremely handsome selkie, he also happens to be a Fenley. You know, those Fenleys who conduct aurora research. Tavish is surprisingly chill about his encounter with Rubem, who does not make a great first impression. First, Rubem steals Tavish's selkie coat, which is the thing that enables him to turn into a seal, because it's shiny and the aurora wants it. And then, again spurred by the aurora, Rubem murders some people who are trying to kill an orca nearby. So, that happened. This was one part of the book where I was skeptical about a character's reactions. Tavish seemed extremely chill about a little bit of murder. He's just going to let that go? Okay. <laughs> I accept it. We're here for this ride. Tavish promises to help Ruben reach Marahim and, once they're there, find someone to help remove the aurora. Ruben really doesn't have a better option. He could go home and die slowly there, or he could take a chance on trusting Tavish and hope that he survives. Tavish does genuinely want to help, but he also considers Ruben a chance to get leverage over his family. This aurora would be extremely useful, and he has other concerns. Tavish kind of wants to know why and how Ignatian is infecting the local wildlife, and also wants to help improve the living conditions in his city. You know, easy, basic goals. So they make it to Marahim, but before they can reach a lab, they are separated. Tavish is bustled away to the rich upper city, and Rubim is shunted to the poverty-stricken lower city. And as you might have guessed, Marahim is separated on these extreme class lines. There are seven families that control every resource needed for life in the underwater city. There are gates separating upper and lower districts, and they only allow the lower city folk into the upper city to work. Rubim wants to ignore all of it. He just wants to be free from the aurora so he can return to his solitary life with his rescued animals and his alcohol. There's a lot in this book about how the wealthy can and do manipulate the world's systems to suit themselves. Taxes are higher on the lower city residents, their movements are restricted, and they're packed into tight quarters while the upper city is almost unnaturally empty. Very few of the wealthy people take any interest in improving life in the city for everyone. Tavish is one such person. He donates money to help, 
but he's never been in the lower city to talk with the people there and figure out what they actually need. He just assumes that what he's doing is for the best. And it can be difficult to write a sympathetic, wealthy character who doesn't quite understand the rest of the world. And I think Bryn actually did a good job of making Tavish a sympathetic character, while also showing us that Tavish is kind of misguided in what he's trying to accomplish. As you might imagine, in a city set up like this, trouble is brewing. The lower city is poised on the edge of revolt, and someone has murdered one of the Finleys, Tavish's older brother. The wealthy do not like to be reminded that they are vulnerable. Squarely in between the wealthy and the rest of the population stands Rubim, who is attached to a power source, the Aurora, that could help the lower city or kill him, and Tavish, child of the wealthy elite who wants to help but doesn't know how to stand up to his family. Rubim manages to talk his way into the upper city and reunite with Tavish. Meanwhile, Tavish tries to find someone somewhere who will help them. Even distracted by his brother's murder and his regular ongoing family drama, Tavish hopes he can get Rubim safely free from his aurora. But no one is willing to go against the Finleys, not even for the youngest member of the family. Tavish's mother wants the aurora, and she stonewalls every attempt Tavish makes to find help. Before they can come up with another plan, Tavish and Rubim are framed for the murder of Tavish's sibling, and they must flee Marahim. They make it to a nearby Finfolk town, which had a cool half-underwater, half-above-water style to accommodate both aquatic and land-based people. I thought it was a fun world-building thing. Rubim and Tavish have a brief time to relax. They even meet a scientist unaffiliated with the Finleys who offers to help them, but tells them that there's only so much that can be done far away from the labs of the Finley Corporation. Not only that, but Lilias is still out there continuing her single-minded pursuit of Rubim and his Aurora, and so, with little choice, they return to Marahim. And there is so much going on. I have merely skimmed the surface. There's the murder mystery, the parasite taking over Rubem, uprising of the lower city, capitalism being evil, Tavish and Rubem falling in love, and, along with Ignatian decimating the local wildlife, they discover the auroras are dying, and no one knows why. The major cities in this world have built their technology relying on auroras as a power source. If they die, everyone is in trouble. And it's not easy to just switch to a new power source. I'm sure nothing in this is a metaphor for fossil fuels. That was a joke. I'm pretty sure this is a metaphor for fossil fuels. And this whole time, Rubim is racing against the clock. The Aurora continues to dig itself deeper with every day and every time he has to use its strength to save his life. And Elias is still hunting him, 
each time he slips away from her, she becomes more determined to catch him. The ending is just one hit after another, a series of revelations and betrayals. They race to remove the Aurora, take control of the Finley Corporation, figure out what's killing Auroras, define the relationship, and stay one step ahead of Lilias and the powder keg that is the lower city. Every time they overcome one obstacle, another would arise, and sometimes obstacles would come back for a second round. But slightly battered, but still alive, they do emerge from the wreckage of a changed Marahim. Neither Rubim nor Tavish got what they wanted at the beginning of this book. But as with most stories, they got something they weren't expecting, but might turn out to be better. I enjoyed this one a lot. There were some moments where I felt like the pacing was a little off, especially at the end, where we're rushing from event to event to wrap up the story. Like, the door is being broken down, but we have time to collect necessary equipment and have a nice little chat. It wasn't bad. I think it just sort of drained the tension from some scenes. There were plenty of fun side characters and villains. The world building was fun. I did like Rubim's journey from trying to run away from everything to wanting to help and like putting his life on the line to help people. Also, I liked that our main characters acknowledged the need to move away from Ignatian as a power source while also acknowledging that it would be difficult to do so, but ultimately worth it. It just sort of appeals to me as a story concept. And I think that's it. Don't forget, this book came out today. If you want more media like this, I suggest Bryn's other works, because I can't think of any merfolk or underwater fantasy books somehow. However... For an island of people who race Kelpies, combining myth and modernity in a wacky way, try The Scorpio Races by Maggie Stiefvater. Join me next time to hear about Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. As always, I'd love to hear from you about this book or other books. I'm not picky. Also, if you have a recommendation for a book set underwater, I'm very curious now. You can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it, or just share it with a friend. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast and also at backlogbooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.